I don't know about you, but I really enjoy Sunday evening worship. And there are a lot of reasons that I really enjoy coming together on Sunday evening. One of those is we get to sing for a longer period of time uh, when we're together. And we also uh, have people that were at both the morning services coming together on Sunday evening. Another thing that I like about Sunday evening services, it's a time for us to talk about some things that maybe we don't have time to get to in, in our Bible classes on Sunday morning. And tonight is going to be one of those nights where we talk about our worship and song. It seems like there are some issues that seem to come up and just almost a, a regular basis. A few years will go by and then a certain question will crop up and people will be dealing with that and wrestling with that issue. And in the past few years, a lot of questions have come up surrounding worship and song. And they're good questions. They're questions that deserve to be asked and, and need to be dealt with biblically and with Scripture. One of the main questions that is being discussed even today is why we would sing without instruments. What is the point of not having instruments when we sing? Well, I think that's a question that deserves an entire night unto itself. We need to have a biblical answer for that. In the Old Testament, instruments were used to worship God, but under the new law, we don't see that happen in the New Testament church, when the New Testament church worships. Not only that, but conclusively throughout history, we see that the early church did not use instruments when it came together to worship. And so it's important for us to realize that choosing uh, to worship a cappella is not a choice that we have made. It's a choice that God makes for us in the New Testament church. And to be a part of that church is to worship a cappella. That's not what we're going to talk about tonight. Tonight, we are going to talk about why we sing. Because I think when we deal with some of those questions that are out there about, about what we can or, or, or should be able to do in our worship and song, if we can understand why we sing, if we can understand the reason behind why we praise God in song, we'll be better prepared to answer those questions. As we think about this, tonight I'm not going to make uh, any assumptions. I learned two weeks ago, as my father and I were teaching a, a song leading class at Horizons, which is a future leadership camp at Fried Hardeman University, uh, we even had, I think last week, uh, some of our junior high students attend. As, as we were teaching a song leading class, we had a group of men, or young men, I should say, in that class, that were ready. This was the advanced song leading crew. These were the guys that were really excited about leading singing, and they had had a lot of experience, and they wanted to practice, and they wanted to, to ask questions. And it was interesting, as we went through to illustrate one point, we turned uh, to the song, Seeking the Lost. Seeking the Lost, yes, kindly entreating. Wanderers on the mountain astray. We sing that here in our worship time together. It was interesting because we started singing that, and then we paused about halfway through the first verse, and Dad asked the group, how many of you have sung this song before? This is a group of 15 to 17-year-old young men. There were 13 in our class, and there were two hands that went up. And I thought that was, that was just really kind of fascinating to me that, that something that I had taken for granted as a song that I learned growing up isn't one that they knew. And as we got together another group to sing and to learn some new songs, the rate was even higher of people who had never sung that song before. As we think about our worship and song, it's important not to make any assumptions as to what you or I know or what we're on the same page about. And so tonight we're going to begin with a very basic look at why we sing, 
while we come together and, and sing praises, and then we're going to look at how we should sing. And so I hope you'll go with me. We'll be spending time in different passages of Scripture as we study through and try to determine what God wants us to do as we worship in song. If you would be turning in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 3. If you want an easy way to get there, just turn to the beginning of the New Testament and flip backwards a few pages. It'll be the fourth book from the end of the Old Testament. As you're turning there, let me welcome all of those of you who are visiting with us. I also want to remind us of some very important opportunities we have coming up to serve. The Beach Grove campaign this weekend has been mentioned on Friday and Saturday. That would be an excellent, excellent opportunity to go out to knock doors to help a a congregation that's looking to reach out to its community. And so please, if you can, even if you think you might be able to, if you could get with Jeff Brown or if you could sign the sign-up sheet back at the Welcome Center, that would be a wonderful thing to be a part of. That'll be Friday and Saturday. Also like to remind all of us that there will be a group leaving on Thursday to go to Donetsk, Ukraine, and there will be another leaving the following Thursday, a group of three that will come join us. And we would appreciate and value your prayers uh, throughout this entire trip. We will be working uh, with two different orphanages. We will be doing a VBS at one congregation and doing a campaign at the Kresnoarmisk congregation that, that we support here at Mount Juliet. And we'll be doing a few other things, trying to encourage our brothers and sisters over there. Uh, we will have a blog this year, as we did last year, that we'll try to update regularly. So if you want to have an update about what's taking place over there, if you just go to the church website, there's a link. You can click on that, and it'll take you to the latest entry. And if you want to know a good way to encourage a group that's on a mission trip, if you could leave a comment on that blog, even if we can't respond, that is a tremendous, tremendous encouragement. And so if you could keep those uh, things in your, your prayers and in the forefront of your minds over the next couple of weeks. Why do we sing? When we come together, what is it that we hope to do as we, as we lift up these praises to God? Why do we do it? Well, there's a verse in Zephaniah that I, has quickly become one of my favorite Old Testament pictures of God. When we read through the prophets, many times in order to describe God, they'll, they'll paint a word picture. And here in Zephaniah chapter 3, we see a word picture painted of God. Look at verse 17 of Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I think it's a beautiful picture of a God that will rejoice over His people in song. When we think about singing, singing is a part, according to this verse, this word picture of God's nature. God rejoices over His people here in this verse with song. And so as we think about the singing we do, we can identify with this picture here of a God who is rejoicing, making that joyful noise with song. As we think also about what it means to worship in song, singing is part of God's plan for worshiping Him. And as we read through the Bible from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, we see God's people continually praising Him in song. Here are just a few examples. After crossing through the Red Sea in Exodus 15, chapter 1, the immediate response is Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And then we have a recording of the song that they sang. After Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, we read in Mark 14, 26, when they had sung a hymn, 
they went out to the Mount of Olives. Again, singing is continually recorded throughout Scripture. James chapter 5 and verse 13 would say, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. That's a response of cheer to life's joys, to the blessings God has given us. And as we think about the book of Revelation, we see even pictured in a kind of a glimpse of heaven that there were 144,000 singing a new song before the throne. And so in this, this book that's filled with pictures and symbolism, we see them rejoicing in song. As we think about singing from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through the end of the New Testament, there are a couple of passages that are important to remember as we think about our congregational singing. And they're found in Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. And if you want to turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, we do have those verses on the screen. But I want us to read through these instructions that Paul gives the church at Ephesus and also uh, the church in his Colossian letter. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. If you'll notice, when Paul writes his letters, one of the, one of the distinctives that we see when he starts talking about, about worship to God, worship to God was different than a lot of the mystery religions, a lot of the pagan religions that they had around them. For instance... When you think about the pagan religion that worshipped Dionysius as the goddess of fertility, as the goddess of wine, you have a worship that's taking place there, and Paul's making a distinction. He's saying, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but instead, rather than do what this other, this other group is doing, worshipping a pagan god, Paul is saying, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, if you're like me, you've probably read those verses before and thought, so what's the difference between a psalm and a hymn and a spiritual song? Have you ever asked that question? Uh, when you think about the English words, there's a big difference. If I were to say psalm, we'd think of probably one of the psalms in the Old Testament. If I were to say of hymn, uh, say a hymn, we would think of an, an older song in our songbooks. If I were to say a spiritual song or a spiritual, we'd think of an entirely different song altogether. And there might be some slight differences uh, between those three, but if you, it's interesting that when we look back at the translation of the Old Testament that was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, all three of those words are kind of used interchangeably. So there's not any real rigid distinction there. You, you might could find a little bit of difference, but it's not that large. That, so Paul is telling them, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, every song that you sing will have a spiritual connotation to it, will have a spiritual purpose when you come together and when you sing, making melody, notice in your heart to the Lord. He says something similar in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's those sequence of words again. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. When we think about worshiping God with instruments, it's important to realize God has given us the instrument with which we are to worship Him. He's given us our voice with which we are to sing, but more importantly than how our voice sounds is what is happening in our hearts. In both places, he stresses making melody in your heart to the Lord, singing with grace in your heart. I can sound wonderful singing out loud, but if nothing is happening in here, nothing is happening in my heart, then worship isn't taking place. Not the way Paul describes it. It's not enough just to sing physically, but something has to be happening in the heart. Singing is a part of God's plan for worship. 
And so when we come together to sing, it's important that we realize God's plan for worshiping and also his plan for teaching. Now, here's an aspect of singing we might not think much about. But when we sing, we are teaching other people. We're teaching those around us. Now, how many of you in here, if I could just ask for a show of hands, how many of you in here learned the books of the New Testament through a song? Let's just, if you don't mind raising your hand, look, look around at the way, you see how easy it is for us to learn through song. Singing is a way of teaching. When we think of the hymns that, that we sing when we come together as a congregation, they're teaching something. And that's why it's so important for us to examine what it is we're singing and, and what it is we're teaching. Singing is a part of God's plan for teaching. We know that Paul told the Colossians they were to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He writes something similar to the church at Corinth. And you'll remember in the church at Corinth here in 1 Corinthians 14, this is in the middle of all of these problems that the Corinthians are having when they come together to worship. But notice what he says here. He says it's important in verse 15 to pray with the Spirit and also pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit and I will also sing with understanding. And so it's important not just to sing with the Spirit, but to sing with understanding, to know what's being sung, to know what I'm singing when I come together to worship. Uh, Paul would later on, uh, in that same chapter, uh, when he's talking in verse 26, would say, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now, 1 Corinthians 14 is dealing with a lot of the first century miraculous gifts that aren't present today. And yet the principle was everything that's done in a worship service is to be done to build others up. Edification. And so as we sing, we're teaching one another. We're, we're uplifting one another. We're edifying one another. And we're also informing each other of some very, very important spiritual truths. So singing is very important. And when we think about why we sing, it's also important to think about how we sing. Now this is kind of a, a challenging topic for us to talk about. Because if you're like me, uh, when, when it comes to singing, I can think of times where I didn't really want anyone to hear how I sounded. Especially if it was a song I didn't know very well, or if, you know, maybe, it was, maybe it was a new song, or maybe it was a song that, that got really high at one part, and I didn't want anyone to hear how my voice sounded there. We can probably all identify with that. But as with all aspects of worship, we are commanded, we are called as Christians to give our absolute best. In fact, right after Paul would talk to the Colossians about uh, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He would also make that statement in verse 17. Uh, Whatever you do, do, do it as to the Lord. Even when we sing, we are singing as to the Lord, giving it our all, giving it our best. So it's important to realize that when I come in to sing, it doesn't matter how I might feel about my physical voice. I have a responsibility, a God-given responsibility, to do the absolute best I can. He doesn't call me to do any more than my best. If I'm not a professional singer, he doesn't ask for me to be one, but just to use the voice and whatever ability he's given me uh, to the absolute best that I could possibly use it. As we think about that, it's also important, I believe, to focus on ways that we can improve our singing. Focus on ways that we can improve using uh, this ability God has given us. You know, it wasn't too many years ago that there were Christians all over this region and other regions that would take time off from work, that would come in early or or that would miss a morning shift so that they could be at a church building to attend a singing school. That there would be even 
weeks on end where someone would come into town and they would try to focus on how to sing. How can we sing better? And they would try to learn the the tenor part or the bass part. And not because they wanted to perform and not because they wanted to impress anybody with their voice, but they just wanted to try to improve their singing. And I want to be very careful here because I don't want to leave the impression that in order to please God, we have to be able to read shape notes or read music or even know the difference between a treble clef and a bass clef. But as we think about improving our song... If we have an opportunity to improve our singing, wouldn't we want to seize that? Think about it this way. Let's look at another aspect of our worship together that might help this make a little more sense. When, when we think about giving to the Lord, we know we're all commanded to give of our means. And so if you have a college student over here that's working his way through school, and you have someone who in his lifetime has earned millions of dollars over here sitting on the same pew likely those contributions are going to be very different, wouldn't you think? If both are giving of their means, they're going to be very different. Now, if both individuals have purposed in their heart what to give and they're giving as they've been prospered, both contributions are okay. The value is not what distinguishes one from the other. What makes a a contribution or, or a giving in line with God's will is to give as you've been prospered. The same is true with singing. If we have two people sitting on the same pew... And one person we might think sounds wonderful, and one person we might think it's wonderful that they're here. You know, we've we've got two different people on one pew. God doesn't make a distinction, just like He doesn't make a distinction between the amounts that are given. He doesn't make a distinction between the quality of either one, as long as both are using the best of their ability. As they're, if you give as you've been prospered, and you sing as you've been prospered, if you are giving what you have, then God is pleased with that. And so I think it's a challenge. It's comforting to me because I know that God's not concerned with the quality of my voice as much as the condition of my heart. But it's also a challenge because I have to realize, just like God expects me to give as I've been prospered, which means not to give back just the smallest amount I possibly can, but to give as I've been prospered, God also expects me to sing as I've been as I've been blessed, as I've been given the ability. So not just to get by on what little I possibly can, but to sing out. Don't we owe it to God in our worship to do the best that we can? And so as we think about why we sing, it's clear that it's part of God's nature as we see that word picture in Zephaniah. It's part of His plan for worshiping. It's part of His plan for teaching. And when we think about how we sing, we sing to the best of our ability. I can think of some of the most encouraging people I have ever sat next to during a worship service and listened to them sing And I can guarantee you that they wouldn't have been technically the best singers I've ever heard. But you can tell when someone is singing with passion, with enthusiasm, when they are laying everything out there, when they are singing to the absolute best of their ability. And that's all God calls us to do. As we think about that, I also think it will be helpful uh, to address the question that we all face as a church family. What kind of songs do we sing? Are certain songs better than others? Bruce McClarty, who was here this past Wednesday evening, wrote an article that I thought was was just outstanding when it came to worship and song. And it told about two different people who went home and talked about a worship service that they had attended. The first man went home and talked to his wife and he said, well, she said, "How how was the worship service you attended? He said, well, it was good, but they sang praise songs rather than hymns. And she said, really, what's the difference between a praise song? He said, well, let me put it to you this way. If I were wanting to tell you that Martha 
Martha, the cows are out eating the corn. If I were doing a praise song, I would say, say, Martha, Martha, Martha. Martha, oh, oh, Martha. The cows, the cows, the cows are out in the corn. The corn, Martha. The cows are in the corn. And then I would repeat that five times over, and that would be like a praise song. And so she kind of nodded her head and said, okay. Then a different story, a different man comes home. And he talks to his wife, and she says, well, how was the worship service? And he said, well, it was good. They, sing, they sang hymns instead of praise songs. She said, really? Well, what is a hymn? He said, well, let me put it to you this way. If I were to, to talk to you and tell you that the cows were out and, and eating the corn, I would say, Martha, Martha, oh, hither to my voice, and inclinest thou near to my complaint. The cows are in the corn. And then he said, and then we would sing the first, second, and fourth verse and repeat the chorus, and that would be a hymn. And so as, as we think about the difference, we can kind of laugh because we know that there are some different songs as we come together to worship. I thought it would be interesting for us just to think through, just kind of historically, have you ever wondered where some of the songs uh, that we sing come from? I thought it would be, would be helpful. Now, as we think about the difference between old and new songs, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time. As you read this, see if, see if you can guess about when this would have been written. For some years, we have noticed a tendency among many people to drift away from the good old songs that were loved and cherished by our fathers and mothers and to adopt the modern tunes. As a result, there has been a great decline, and in our humble judgment, the progress has been downward and backward. The singing is not as sweet and as soul-stirring as it was in our younger days. Now, that's the preface to a songbook. Now, just try and guess what year that songbook was published. Interestingly enough, that songbook was published in 1912. In 1912, they were worried about the new songs. Let's just look at a list of some of the new songs that they were concerned with. Walking Alone at Eve is one. No Tears in Heaven. Paradise Valley. Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary. Oh, the Depth and the Riches of God's Saving Grace. Ten Thousand Angels. And I'll Fly Away. Now, these were songs that today we would consider some of the old standards and old favorites. It's interesting to see how things have progressed over time. And so I thought we won't spend very long on looking through some of these hymns throughout history, but I thought it would be interesting. In about the 4th and 5th century, and these are very approximate dates, uh, the early church had songs that were primarily call and response songs. So in other words, you would have one side sing something and the other side would repeat it. Now the fancy word for a call and response song is antiphonal. And so if you're with your friends this week and you want to impress them, throw in the word antiphonal. That's the kind of songs they had in the 4th and 5th century. Kind of a call and response song. After that, you have a medieval period that lasts a long time. And that's when you have what we would think of as the chant was kind of produced. And so songs, there was a lot of chanting when they would come together to sing. During this time, O Sacred Head was written. And that's a song that we still have with us today. Now just think about this. Uh, I'd like for us to sing a verse of this in just a moment. But just imagine how many Christians will be in heaven that will have learned this song at some point in their life, being written so many years ago. And so as we sing the song, let's just reflect on that. It's number 318 in your songbook. And we'll just sing through the first verse here as we reflect on, on the history behind this hymn. Oh,
sing that song, can't you hear kind of the, the period in which that song was written? And so as we think about that, the 16th through 17th century was more of what historians have termed the Reformation area. And Martin Luther was a major influence on hymns. And he focused more on congregational singing rather than what at the time was taking place where you had priests that were chanting a song. And it's interesting, he would often take some well-known secular tunes and put a spiritual uh, emphasis on them, put some spiritual words to them. Unless it was too well-known, in which case he said he would give it back to the devil. If it was too well-known for being a secular tune, he wasn't going to use it in worship. But one of the songs that he wrote that, that we sing today is A Mighty Fortress. It's number 10 in your book, but it, let's sing a verse of that as we think about this era in history. understand the part of history in which that was written. 17th, early 18th century, you have songs written by Isaac Watts, uh, who wrote many songs in our songbook, and uh, he drew much of his inspiration from the Psalms. In fact, the story is told that he went into his father one day and was so upset at the lack of good songs to sing in church, his father challenged him and said, well, if you're that upset, then why don't you try writing some yourself? And he did. And he actually wrote some of the most... uh, often sung songs that we have in our book. During this period, it's interesting, just kind of a side note as we think about uh, We're Marching to Zion, one of the songs he wrote, that there were some that doubted that Christians could sing songs unless they were straight out of the book of Psalms. In other words, uh, that you couldn't make up your own poetry, but that you would need to sing sing those psalms. It's interesting. Let's sing verse 2 of We're Marching to Zion. And think about uh, what he says here when he, he writes, Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. And so you see a little sense of what was taking place in this part in culture. So let's sing verse 2 of number 869. We're marching to Zion. Let those context in which that was written. In the early 18th and late 19th century, you have what's sometimes called the revival period. That's when Fanny J. Crosby began writing a lot of the songs uh, that she wrote. Blessed Assurance, for example, is one uh, that was written that we still sing often. And it's also interesting during this time, you had what was known as the Sunday school song. And these were songs that were originally written 
to sing with children and with young people, and it was written to sing during Bible class time. It's interesting, one of those songs that, uh, that we, you might not know the origin of is Onward Christian Soldiers. That song was written because there was a teacher who was trying to find a way to get students to march in for an assembly and march out. And what he came up with was the song uh, Onward Christian Soldiers. Now obviously as we sing it and think about spiritual warfare, it has a much different meaning. But it's interesting to see what that was originally written for. It's number 646 uh, in your books. Let's sing a verse of Onward Christian Soldiers. Onward Christian Soldiers Marching about songs throughout history, that brings us uh, to where we are now as we think about some of the songs that we have in our songbook, a lot of the newer songs uh, that we've been singing together. One of my favorite moments on our stateside mission campaigns every year is to see the devotionals we have at the end of the day. The reason that's one of my favorite moments is because when we come together for devotionals, you have some of our teens that are on the mission trip. And you have some of our 20-something group that are on the mission trip. And then you have every other age in between. Just We have a, a wonderful group, a mix of generations, a different taste, different ages. And what I love about that group when we get together to sing is that we sing the older, more familiar songs and we sing some newer songs. Because you have generations that are sharing with each other. As a church family, that's what we're called to do, to share with each other. And so as we think about those devotions at night and how, how wonderful they are, I'm always astonished. There are books being written on how you can bring different generations in the church together. And yet when we all come together with a common purpose to serve and to worship God, that's when it truly happens. And so as we think about those generations that are able to come together, they come together singing because they have something to sing about. And so as we focused on worshiping God, why we do it, how we do it, what songs we employ as we worship Him, I want to ask you this evening, do you have something to sing about? Is there something for you to make a joyful noise about? Are you in a right relationship with God so that you can sing, so that you can worship Him, and so that you can know as you lift up your voice and praise that you're a part of His family? If not, if that's not the case, tonight would be a wonderful time to make that a reality. Uh, to come forward, to make the decision, to submit your will to His to be buried with Him in baptism, to begin walking that life where you can come together every time we worship and sing praise to His name and know that you're worshiping the God who is the Lord of your life. As we think about the importance of worshiping God in song, it's also important to make sure we belong to the God that we want to worship. And if you have a decision that needs to be made, a concern that you want to make known, if there's any way we can help you, please come as we stand and sing together.